1: This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his session entitled, The Hebrew Epistles.
0: But he goes on and says, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the Day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. So he's talking about the end times. However, the word unto is not implied in the original Greek. The word hasting is the word that is not hasting unto, hastening the coming of the Day of God. In fact, in the NIV it says, Speed is coming, and the NAS, New American Standard, it says, Hastening the coming. In other words, looking for and hastening the coming. Speeding up the coming. Really? Did you know you can speed up the coming of Jesus Christ? That's what it says. How do you do that? Well, by longing for His appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4.8. By praying for His appearing, Revelation 22.8. And by seeking to win souls, in Romans 11.25. That's our mission. That's our job. As we survey the landscape of the coming year and realize it's likely to be a very turbulent year, let's remember that God is still in control, His church is still precious, and we have, still have the same mission, and uh, we should keep at it. We should keep at it, because victory is assured to us. That's really what it's all about. Well, then we get to the first epistle of John. It's called his first epistle. There are many scholars think it's more a set of sermon notes than an actual letter, although it was a letter, of course. And John, very typically, is full of sevens. Seven contrasts. Truth versus error. Light versus darkness. Father versus the world. Christ versus the Antichrist. Good works versus evil works. The Holy Spirit versus error. Love versus pious pretense. God born versus others. So this is John, whether it's his his gospel, or whether it's his letters, or whether it's the book of Revelation. He's a, you always see the heptatic structure, the sevenfold structure. There are seven tests of profession, desire, doctrine, conduct, discernment, motive, and new birth in the first epistle of John. It has uh, seven traits of being born again. It has seven reasons why this epistle was written. It has seven tests of the Christian genuineness. Seven tests of honesty and reality. There are also six liars embraced in that, interestingly enough. One less than seven. And uh, so the structure is there. Whether it's the Holy Spirit or John's style, I'll leave it up to you to sort that through. There's sevens everywhere. The spiritual fundamentals, they're all inclusive commandments. We believe on Jesus Christ, and that's why we love one another. That's John's emphasis. That's the ultimate test of your maternity in Christ, is do you love one another? You have a profession for others. The Father sacrificing a Son was love's last word. The perfect love casteth out fear, and so forth. Well, it's, it's a great letter. It's really the letter you want to study carefully, but I'll leave that to you. Let's go to a second letter, which is widely, in my opinion, misunderstood. I'm going to share some things with you that I cannot find anybody that agrees with me. Second Epistle of John was written to someone called the elect lady, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also, but all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever." And he goes on. The question is, who is the elect lady? If you search the libraries, whether it's back to Jerome in the past, or as recently as, say, Jay Vernon McGee, or some of the current writers, they all will say, all of them, I've checked, say essentially the same thing. This is either an idiom. The elect lady represents the church. It's an idiom for the church, as commonly th- taught. Or, it's some prominent person in the church of Ephesus that will never know who it is. And that's what Jerome thought. Now Jerome was from the medieval church, the predecessor of the Catholic situation. So for him to consider this an idiom the church may be comfortable for him, but not for us. We are not children of the church unto the elect lady and her children. We're not children of the church. I don't buy that. That's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. The alternative is that it's some prominent person we can never know. Well, when I read the first verse, it tells me who she is, and I'm astonished that nobody else seems to see that. So I'm warning I'm, to, I'm show, what I'm about to show you, I want to be candid with you. I can't I have so far not found any of the classical commentators that agree with me. But I have found people, when I show this to them, that agree with me when I show them. Look what it says. The elder that's John, of course. Unto the elect lady, who is the most elect person on the planet Earth? Huh? Mary, absolutely. The dream of every woman, every Jewish woman was to be the mother of the Messiah. She's the most elect lady on the planet Earth. Unto the elect lady and her children. Did she have children? Absolutely. And by the way, the last verse of this letter will say, the sister of your, the, the children of your sister greet you. Did she have a sister? Yes, her sister was with her at the foot of the cross, according to John 19. We'll come to that in a minute. The el- read, just read the first sentence. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, but not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. You Realize what that's saying? Everybody that has known the truth loves her. How could they? They don't know her. But if she's Mary, everybody would feel they do. You you follow me what I'm saying? And he's using the truth here, by the way, it'll become clear as you read the next few verses. He's using the truth as a title of Jesus Christ, by the way. But you don't have to hang on that. The elder and the like, lady are children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all they that have known the truth, love her. So that, that transcends centuries, that transcends the geography. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, see that's Christ, and shall be with us forever. Amen. The elect lady. All they that have known the truth have known her, in fact love her. The Roman Catholic Church has gone so far the other way to to deify her, and as Protestants, we tend to go the other way. We tend to ignore her completely. The truth is obviously somewhere in between. Obviously she's elect if I understand this correctly, this letter gives us a lot of insights. Who is the most elect lady and woman? Mary. To whom did Jesus consign the care of his mother? John. It's amazing. He didn't consign her to his other son. To She had other sons. James and Jude and and others. They're you know, apparently uh, four guys and uh, several sisters. They, he didn't, Jesus did not consign Mary to any of his half- brothers. She can tie him to the Apostle John. Interesting. That which we had from the beginning, he says. So the people who, uh, you know, had loved her, loved her from the beginning. And she did have a sister, according to John 19.25. Now if this is true, let's notice some things. Mary was frustrated with Jesus when He was 12 years old. Remember, she kept those things in her heart. Remember, Jesus gave a sort of a dismissive allusion at Cana. Woman, what do I have to do with you? There's a, that was her last recorded words, by the way, was there. In Mark, she thought Jesus needed care. And, of course, consigned to John. By the way, John also had a pushy mother. <laughs> according to Matthew 20, incidentally. So Mary, too, also needed the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 1. So here's a woman that we may venerate very highly because the mother of Jesus Christ, but she needed encouragement and she needed exhortation. Both. And that's both in this letter. This alters the tone of the whole epistle. Because it's written to Mary, not just to any of us. There's a divine insistence on love and the human expression of love but also a watch against error. There's a warning against false teaching. We are told by Paul to open our ho- homes to hospitality, as a way of reach- preaching the gospel. She's told not to. Why? Because if she brings a false teacher under her roof, she's authorizing that teaching. So anyway, there's warnings in the parting comments and so forth. So I'll let you read the letter. The third epistle of John is a very short little letter to Gaius, service and truth and love and uh, Diotrephes, which had a uh, pride problem and some strife. But he commends Demetrius. So it's a very short little note, just a personal note, but it's been kept. The last epistle is the Epistle of Jude. This little epistle, we could spend weeks on, as it makes allusions that just drive us up a tree. He alludes to things that he assumes his readers know that we don't know. But he, his main thrust is he tells us why we need to contend against the apostates. He points out their, their perversions are subtle, they're destined for a certain doom, they have impious ways, and their utter falsity. So his, his, the whole thrust of the letter's goal is to nail apostasy. But then he tells us how, in the last part of the letter, to contend. What are the resources? Why to contend is the first a half dozen uh, verses, and then just a little letter. He points out that apostasy has been foretold, and he tells us four things to do. To build, pray, keep, and watch, and then support those who contend for the faith. But in this letter are some illusions that are just a kick. In Jude verses 6 and 7, there's only one chapter in the whole book, uh, verse 6 and 7 says, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved an everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day." So he's making an allusion here, very similar to the one that Peter does in his second letter. He talks about these strange goings on in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood of Noah. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. The word habitation is okaterion the body they disrobe from is the body we aspire to in a resurrection body. The same word, Oketarian, only occurs twice in the, in the New Testament. Here, in terms of what the angels disrobe from, and in 2 Corinthians 5 2, the body that we aspire to. In any case, uh, Jude says, "God hath, He hath reserved in everlasting change under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So these, these particular fallen angels that engage in the mischievous Genesis 6 are here alluded to. And he goes on. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And he goes on. Second Peter has a passage just like this, but he even ties it to the days of Noah, interestingly enough. So here we have, things are always confirmed by two or three witnesses. So we have Jude, verse 6 and 7, and we have Second Peter 2 verse 4, and there's another passage in Peter, that support the whole view that we expressed in Genesis chapter 6. We th- I don't think that's a fringe issue. I think it's very fundamental to understand, or you won't understand a great deal of what's going on in the Old Testament, or prophetically. So I leave that with you. But Jude also quotes a prophecy that's rather astonishing. We, have no, we don't know where this came from. But in verse 14 he says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. He's proph- here, Enoch here is prophesying before the flood of Noah of the second coming of Christ. It's astonishing to realize. In fact, it's apparently the, the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet. And it's of the second coming. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. They seem to have a vocabulary problem there. Ungodly, ungodly is, what, four times? But, but in any case, uh, it's a, uh, interesting to realize a prophecy uttered by a prophet before the flood of Noah Of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Try to be a. uh, That's that's that's, I think kind of interesting. But Jude throws us another curve. What he's basically going to be what he's arguing here is that we should not behave like these filthy false teachers. And one of the things that we should not do that they're encouraging us to do is we are not to speak evil of dignitaries. Even if they're our adversaries, you don't speak evil of dignities, is what he's, is the point he's trying to make. Now, likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, they despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. They despise dominion. He, he wants order. Even if they're our enemies, we don't speak evil of dignities. Okay. So far, we can relate to that, right? Except, Jude picks what has to be the most bizarre example to make his point. Because he gives an example here that happens to allude to something we don't know anything about, but that's not the real problem. He says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. And he'll go on in a minute, but first of all, when did Michael dispute with Satan over the body of the Lord? Have no idea. Have no idea. He's making an illusion here that his readers apparently knew about that we've lost somehow. And, and uh, uh, there, there are some that speculate that this might have been an allusion to an apocryphal book called the, uh, the Assumption of Moses, but that's not necessarily true. But the main point he's making here, Michael, when he's in this dispute with Satan, he says, Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. What he's saying here is Michael was in some kind of tension with Satan, and even Michael, the archangel, didn't speak evil of Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. The real point that that Jude is making is we're not supposed to speak evil of dignitaries, but the dignitary he picks as an example has got to be the weirdest one of all. Satan. You're not to speak evil of Satan. You speak honestly about him. He is what he is. I tell you, you know, sometimes in the tent of church and they have these songs they sing. You know, I'm so glad, Satan's so mad. You know, there's a number of these songs that are disparaging of Satan's authority. We shouldn't be intimidated by it. We shouldn't be disparaging it. Jesus Christ is in control. But when we encounter a situation, we let the Lord deal with it. We deal with it through the Lord. Very, very important fundamental point here. Well, we've gone through in this uh, survey, if I can call it that, the Pauline epistles in the, in the previous session. Romans, the session before that was the definitive doctrines of the church. 1st 2nd Corinthians dealt with order in the church in broad terms. Galatians was law versus grace, the flesh versus spirit and all that. Ephesians was the manifestation of the mystery of the church. Very pivotal epistle in the area of ecclesiology. We really need to understand the uniqueness of the church even among believers. It's not all believers are in the church. And we'll talk more about that in uh, the next session as we do a review of eschatology. But you'll discover many of the problems in eschatology are not eschatological problems, they're ecclesiology problems. And then was the, the, the epistle of the Philippians, basically our resources and suffering, which has, of course, this incredible passage about the mind of Christ and so on. Then Colossians. Colossians is one of those incredible peaks that you, it's fun to be on the, at the top of. Christ's preeminence. Colossians is a, an incredible... Uh, epistle if you're interested in cosmology, or uh, ontology, or any of these uh, uh, high, uh, the high ground. It's incredible. Thessalonians will take on next time. We didn't get into that much because I've reserved it to be analyzed very carefully. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are probably two of the most important eschatological epistles in the, in the New Testament. First and 2 Timothy and Titus are basically are advice to pastors, but there's not only good practical advice there, there's many insights that are there. And there's little piece of art called Philemon. You need to really, it's a be, little brief study, but it's a del- delightful study about Onesimus and uh, what intercession is really all about. Well, and then in this session, that was the previous session, this session we went through the Hebrew Christian epistles. Hebrews was really the express document for what we would call the New Covenant. That's what Jeremiah called it. Amply dealt with, I believe, for a number of reasons. It was penned by Paul, who remained anonymous so that he would broaden his readership. But there are good scholars that have slightly different views. Jacob, or James, demonstrating your faith through works. You don't get saved by works, but if you have real faith, it will show up in works. First Peter's read really the persecuted church, and second Peter, the coming apostasy is his emphasis. And John's epistle, first John deserves if there's any place that we've sort of shortchanged you, there's one place we really should spend, we should have spent more time on John, but you can do that on your own. Just take the, take that little epistle and dissect it, analyze it, outline it, just uh, immerse in it. And 2 John, I think, has a whole different complexion if you understand who it was written to. But in any case, it deals with false teachers and, and their threat. 3 John is just the preparation of helpers, a little one. It's interesting, of the Hebrew Christian epistles, three of them deal with apostasy or false teachers. 2 Peter, 2 John, and Jude. Big issue and certainly clear today. We have prominent Christian people turning apostate. Fortunately, one of the major ones that's been a a particular concern to us is being pulled off the air by a number of stations, because as one wag put it, he's come out of his eschatological closet, someone that's a very prominent speaker has become, announced that he's preterist, that all prophecy is fulfilled. There really is no such thing as Armageddon. These stories aren't really true. They're just lessons and just has just totally discredited himself in the eyes of anyone that takes the Bible seriously. And I, I frankly, I pray for him, but at the same time, I applaud the clarity because there's many people that didn't realize um, where some of this is coming from. You need to understand that just because they're prominent and well-known people does not make them correct. You need to remember... Acts 17.11, which is our trademark. You receive the Word of God with all openness of mind, but then you search the Scriptures day to prove where those things be so. And that's where Luke tells you, don't believe anything Chuck Missler tells you, check it out for yourself. The seven most important epistles we haven't talked about yet. That'll come in the time after next. There are seven epistles that were written by Jesus Christ himself. There's a second letter to Ephesus, and it's going to be very important that we understand the first letter in order to really understand the second letter, the letter written by Jesus. He wrote a letter to Smyrna, which has some similarities to Philippians, interestingly enough. He's written a letter to Pergamos, which has some similarities to Corinthians. letter to Thyatira, a letter to Sardis, a letter to Thessalonica, and a letter to Laodicea. These seven letters by Jesus Christ that constitute Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are the most important chapters in the book of Revelation. They're the ones that are most important to you and me. From chapter 4 on is yet future, and we'll watch that from the mezzanine. What's critical for you and I is to really understand these seven letters, and there's far more tucked away in their structure than most people have any idea. And we'll try to give you a glimpse of that when we get to the time after next. But the four that, when you study those four, I encourage you to read the Revelation 2 and 3 several times between now and the time we meet on it. But I want you to notice that the first three and the last four are distinctively different in a couple of aspects. And I'll let you search for that, see if you can find it before we get there. That'll be your little anticipatory project. But next time, be prepared with a notebook because we're going to try to go through a review of eschatology study of last things. Why do some people hold to a premillennial position, some amillennial? Most churches are amillennial. And that's a very dangerous view because it makes God a liar. We need to understand what's that all about. And given that you're premillennial, okay, great. When does the rapture occur? Is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whenever? Why do certain people have different views? We won't keep our view a secret. We'll let you know how we feel, but we'll try to do it in a way that you'll be able to map different views as to how they stand on different issues. And then, of course, that'll be a prelude before jumping in to the climax of the whole thing. Everything that was started in Genesis is climax in Revelation, and we will then go there. But the next session is review eschatology, study last things. And we'll try to t- take in And what is this rapture? What's the hypothesis? Is that a nonsense? Is that something recent? Is that, or is that serious? It's obviously the most preposterous view in Christianity, but is it true? And if that is true, does the church go through the tribulation? That's probably, in certain practical senses, one of the most burning issues today among Christians that are uh, take the Bible seriously. And so we'll, tra- de- we'll deal with all of that fairly directly in the next session. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this brief opportunity to surface it, to get our arms around it, to review it. We pray, Father, that You would just increase in each of us a hunger, an appetite. We pray, Father, too, that You would lead us to where we should go next, where we should probe more deeply. But in all these things, Father, we just pray that You would open our hearts and lives to Your Word, that we might be more fruitful stewards of these gifts You've given us. We pray, Father, that we might be growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, and that, more, and that we would be more pleasing in Your sight as we go forth and just commit ourselves without any reservation into Your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and
1: Savior, Jesus
0: Christ. Amen.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact this station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.